0: Hello to all the Rugby League diehards and welcome to another episode of 6 to Go. My name is Tom Canfell and it's great to have your company. As we head into today's episode, you know how it works. We'll cover six topics related to the game or even their own career. My guest this week is Peter Bedell. With so much going on in the game, there's not many better to go to than Pete. And after the Broncos' heavy defeat last night, which puts their top eight hopes in real jeopardy, I decided to get him on to discuss the implications of the results of the season. Hope you enjoy our chat. Here's Peter Bedell. I'm joined by Peter Bedell as the next guest of the 60O podcast. Pete, how are you, mate? Hello, Tom. How are you? Really good, really good. I'd I'd like to get... Well, I, I'll rephrase that. I will get things kick-started on a bit of a sombre note. I don't, I'm not sure whether or not I'd like to or not. And that is Paul Green. It still hasn't sunk in uh, for me. Um, can I just get your thoughts on this aspect? Is the NRL doing enough in this space of mental I, I
1: health? They, yeah, I think they are, Tom. I mean, I, I've been covering this game 25 years now, and I don't think I've ever seen the NRL be more acutely aware of, of mental health issues now than they ever have been. I, I think they're certainly a, they're very cognizant, I think, as everyone is in the game of the, the mental health issues that are in not just rugby league but in wider society. And I know that all the clubs have individual welfare officers now that check in on players. Players have that available resource if they need it. And I know that the NRL take it very seriously, and as we've seen with other issues in the game, such as such as gay pride and, and inclusivity. So, look, I, I, think, I, I don't think we could apportion blame to anyone. Not that we're suggesting that, perhaps, but if that was the case, I don't think there's any blame to be apportioned to anyone in rugby league. I, I think... The, the NRL governing body and all the clubs do a great job in addressing the welfare of players and coaches. And it's just been a very sad state of affairs, Tom, what's happened. I mean, I'm still quite devastated. I I, I knew Paul Green for 20 years and it started professionally and it morphed a little bit into almost a, you know, a, a friendship. But um, yeah, it's, it's been very sad and let, let's hope, we can learn something out of it. But in terms of mental health in in rugby league, I think the NRL do a good job being on top of it.
0: It's, it's been a, it's been a week or two now since his passing. Um, you did know him. Can you just reflect on what he was like?
1: Yeah, he was, uh, it's funny. I spoke to his mum, Patricia, which was a heartbreaking exchange, Tom, just last week. And, In her words, she said Paul was always very intense, you know, and that's from his own mother who knew him best. And he he was an intense guy, Greeny. But some amid that intensity was also a great emotional intelligence, a great awareness, and he he also had he was also able to see the lighter side of things as well and have a, a joke. And he was often one of the boys. He loved he loved reunions. He went to the Cronulla Sharks reunion just two weeks ago. And he loved his fishing trips away with Andrew Simons, who's sadly also passed since. So he was one of the boys, Greeny, but he also had a great intelligence. He had a pilot's license. And even in my talks with him, Tom, he was a guy who was prepared to challenge conventional thinking. He wasn't afraid to to spoke about the things that he felt strongly about. And I felt, I felt Greeny was a high achiever. He... If you look at his resume on paper, the things he did in life and in rugby league, his chosen pursuit, were quite remarkable. Winning a Rothman's medal, playing so many games of NRL, playing for Queensland, playing for Australia during Super League, going on to coaching, winning two premierships back-to-back at Winner and Manly, then winning the first-ever historic premiership for the Cowboys in 2015. That can never be taken away. So in every strand, in every sphere, Paul Green was an achiever. He he threw himself and his energies into whatever he chose to pursue, and I think that should be his lasting legacy. He was an achiever and a doer, and I think that's something we should all strive for as human beings.
0: He accomplished a lot, and it's it still is very sad. But we will move on to things far less important than and that is on-field matters. If you had to put money on it, where's Munster in 24?
1: I believe Tom he'll be at the Dolphins now. Look, there has been a shifting of sands in the last four or five days. I know Melbourne have increased their original offer from 800000 a season to a million. Now, to me, that puts them definitely back in the ballpark. If, if their original offer stayed, I, I believe Munster was no chance of staying. I believe he would have gone to the Dolphins fader complete. But I think they've got their work cut out in the other Dolphins. They'll probably have to up the ante somewhat. I'm, I'm told their offer will be around the $1.3 million mark. And if you amortise that across... I guess, three or four years, It's it's it adds up to about a $2 million sacrifice if Munster was to stay at Melbourne. So if it's purely about money, Cameron Munster will go to the Dolphins. If it's, if it's about chasing premierships and legacy and all that sort of stuff, then perhaps he stays at the Storm. But I still feel, Tom, that as Cameron Munster approaches his, his 30s, he's 28 in a couple of weeks, I think this is his last big deal. It's a chance to set himself up for life. And... If you're being offered 1.3 mil for four years as the Dolphins are prepared to table, I don't know how he how he knocks that back. So for me, I, I'd be, I think Munster will be at the Dolphins in twenty four.
0: If Munster isn't at the Storm in 2024, do you think Melbourne are a shot to land Payne Haas? Because they're losing a lot of forwards, Melbourne.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I, I think that has to be the next recruiting strategy, doesn't it, for the Storm? I mean, they, they've always had... A great spine, great champions, and they'll still have that. Even if Munster goes, they'll have Jerome Hughes into his 30s. They'll have Ryan Pappenhausen to hold the, the spine together. And, of course, Harry Grant, who is just an, an incredible hooker. Probably the He'll probably be the, the dominant hooker for the next 10 to 12 years. So their spine is taken care of, and they now need to turn their attention to the pack and, and the midfield. Yeah, look, Payne Haas, I think Melbourne have to look at someone like him. I actually know they tried to sign him as a 17-year-old. He was very close to going he was about to board a plane to, to sign a deal with Melbourne. And at the last second, he got a phone call from Wayne Bennett at the Broncos and Wayne convinced him to sign with Brisbane. So so they've had a crack at him before. They nearly got him. And if you're looking at potential replacements to spearhead a new revolution or a renaissance with Jesse Bromwich and his brother moving on, I think Payne Haas is, is the prototype prop that, I think he'd flourish in a Storm system. who love players that love doing the 1% as right, have attention to detail, Payne Haas has that. So the Storm would be crazy not talking him.
0: How's Wayne doing, Pete? Because this Dolphins signing extravaganza isn't playing out as well as I'm sure he would have hoped for.
1: Oh, look, I think Wayne um, Burt would be the first to admit, Tom, that it's probably been... Harder to recruit than he would have imagined. I, you know, I think there was a bit of a perception or a sentiment that that Wayne, being the super coach that he is, could sprinkle the magic dust and play a few tunes, and they'd all follow the Pied Piper to Redcliffe. It hasn't worked out that way. But but in saying that, Tom, oh, I still think the Dolphins are constructing a serviceable roster that can be competitive enough in year one. I don't think looking at their current roster, they'll make the finals in year one, but I don't think we should expect that of a new franchise. Look, if they can just be competitive and hold their own and then start to build a base and eventually get some momentum, things can turn quickly. What I will say, Tom, is I, I think people are overlooking the culture, the set that has to happen. You've got to have a cultural bedrock and the players they've signed will provide that. Jesse Bromwich, Kenny Bromwich, Felise Cafusi they premiership winners from the storm they know success they've tasted it they that they will be the glue that holds the club together in the early years and then you can build off a strong base and I, and I, so I think I think they deserve credit the dolphins for signing those guys but they they don't probably have the strike backs they need so next year I think it's going to be a, a season of grind rather than glamour for the dolphins
0: you were at the press conference last night at the Broncos game. Uh, it seemed Kevy looked a bit lost. Is that what you were picking up?
1: Absolutely, Tom. Yeah, he, he looked um, a number of things, didn't he? He looked obviously shattered, deflated, despondent, crestfallen, almost a man for me, which was quite disconcerting. Tom was looking in you know, search of answers, lost for answers. That's my concern for Kevy. Uh, I think he's done a really good job so far rebuilding this Broncos team. They finished 14th last year. He's had them at fourth after 19 rounds. So there's no doubt they've improved as a club under Kevy as a coach. But the the litmus test now is how does Kevin Walters re-energize this Broncos team that has conceded 113 points in two games and must now re-energise and reload for a final round showdown against the Dragons, of Cogra that could determine their season. I'd hate to see them miss the finals, Tom. I think they deserve to make the eight, despite what's happened the past two to three, four weeks. So I think they've been a better team than Canberra over the course of the year. So I'd like to see them finish eight. So I tip them to finish eight, so they've got to live up to my tip. <laughs> but, um, but in terms of coaching, I think this is a real... Pressure test for Kevy. You know he's got to he's got to show that he's got another dimension to his coaching, and he's got to I guess you now get them out of this crisis. He's he's done it as a player, but it, I guess as a coach, it's a different stratosphere, different dimensions, different demands. So let's just see what Kevin Walters can bring. But certainly the heat is on him and the and the Broncos to turn things around very quickly, or they, they won't play finals.
0: You're right. About five weeks ago, they would have been looking at, you know, we're about six weeks out from the finals. How do we cement ourselves in the top four? Now they're really the underdogs to make the eight now, Pete, after that crazy big amount of uh, points against them last night. Ben Iken, at the start of the year, even on this program, he was very outspoken that missing finals was not an option. If they do miss the finals, do you think Kevy's safe?
1: I would hope so, Tom. I would like him to be safe. But as we know in this game, things change quickly. Coaching's a results-driven business, and who a guy that can be seen as a super coach one minute can be out the door the next. So, look, I would I would keep Kevy for the preseason, but I would I guess I would say if they if they miss the finals this year, that would be 14th and 9th, for example, on Kevy's resume. I'd have to say to Kevy in preseason, well, Kev, this is it now. You, you, he's off contract at the end of 23. Tom, yeah. So he goes into 23 off contract. And I would say to Kevy, we need a finals appearance this year, and if we don't get it, we're going to have to look elsewhere. And I, and I think Kevy, look, he's a pragmatist, Tom. He's a winner as a player. He knows if he doesn't get results, then he he would be the first to put his hand up and walk away. So, but look, I think the next ten, the first ten rounds next year, Tom will be will be fascinating for the Broncos. They need a massive preseason, as the Cowboys have showed this year. I think they can be a template for Brisbane. They. They basically turned the club upside down. Todd Payton, the Cowboys coach, said, we're going to get tougher. We need a mentally sharper squad. They went through a military camp and it's borne out in their results this season. They're not cracking under pressure. And I think Brisbane are cracking under pressure at the moment. And Kevin needs to get a little bit more mental resolve in the club. And if they can start well next season, that could be a springboard for, for sustained success. But right now, I'm not convinced. Brisbane are close to the premiership they want. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon.
0: You're one of the authors of The Rich List. Uh, was was there a big takeaway that you had after doing that?
1: Yeah, yeah the takeaway is become an NRL player. You can, <laughs> you can be overpaid for being average at what you do. Uh, uh, oh, look, no, I, I shouldn't be disrespectful. There's some amazing athletes in the NRL, but I must say, Tom, some of the deals, I just scratch my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like for me, the worst deal in the NRL is Luke Brooks on nine hundred and sixty thousand dollars. I mean, Luke Brooks is so in need of change. I mean, he, he's got some ability, Luke, but I just think he needs a change of club to just refreshing him, refreshing the Tigers. So it could be benefit. It could benefit both parties. But yeah, the one takeaway from the Richlist Tom was I, I think. Some of the spending of the clubs, I mean, they've all got the same salary cap. But for example, the Dragons had the most number of players in the Rich 100, yet they haven't made the finals for a few years. So it's fascinating when you look at the spend of clubs and how they spend their money and often how they overspend their money on players who aren't delivering. I mean, Tavita Pingo Jr. is on 925000 at number 12. So it is a risky business. It can be a dicey thing, rolling the dice on on a David Fafita, for example, who's on one one mil at the Titans and just hasn't stepped up to that mark. So the other takeaway, Tom, I found, which was interesting, that of the 100 list, only six players were fullbacks. Now, fullback's seen as a bit of a money position in the game because it's part of the spine. But ironically, most fullbacks don't earn Bitcoin. I mean, Dylan Edwards, Penrose great custodian. He's not in the top 100. So that surprised me. So while James Tedesco and Tom Trebojevi churn big money as fullbacks, by and large it's not a guarantee that it's it's a pot of gold if you wear the number one jumper.
0: I think Moses Embi would like a word when discussing the, um, the worst contracts in the game. I think he'll say, hold my beer. Uh, <laughs> how, how long does it take to complete a story like that? When did you start that?
1: Yeah, it took... Uh, Probably, probably about a month, Tom. So between myself and my my colleagues Brent Reid, David Riccio, Michael Karianos, Phil Rothfield, we just we divvied up the clubs. We said who, based on, I guess I got the Queensland clubs, for example, based on my contacts up here, and then we just worked the phones. And there, I know some people snigger at the rich list and think it's just you know a tabloid invention, and it's not. It's just pie in the sky stuff, and we just throw darts at a dartboard, but. The the numbers we come up with I believe are very accurate. I mean, are they perfect? I mean, short of getting their tax returns from the ATO then probably <laughs> not. But but I think we're very close. And I know and I know that and I say that with comfort based on the people we talk to at the coalface. We talk to some players personally. Some players are prepared to share their salaries, others aren't. We we triple check figures, we double check figures. So you know, sometimes there might be a manager that suggests a players on a certain figure and we then check the veracity of that and, it, and it's at odds with what they really earn. So there's all those sorts of things that go into compiling the rich list. But I think we do a pretty good job. I, I think it's, it's fairly accurate. And I think most players looking at the list would probably agree. But um, whatever, the, whatever the accuracy is, Tom, I wouldn't mind being on their salaries. It's a lot more than mine, mate.
0: <laughs> Pete, I've got a bit of a personal question to finish up. Uh, in your opinion, who's the best rugby league journalist in the game at the moment? And I want to ask you because I feel it's interesting when you're in the field because you would look at certain things different to the rest of the general public. So if you had to say, if you had to point to someone to say he's the best journalist in the game at the moment, who are you taking?
1: It's a good question, Tom. I've never been asked this before. Look, if I had to name someone right now, I'd have to say Phil Rothfield. Uh, for me, Phil epitomises what great journalism is. And I know he doesn't always have his fans. That's the that's part of the course of being a journalist, and and sometimes in his role, Tom, you you do have to go close to the edge. You push the limits, and sometimes you go over the cliff. You know, we don't always get as journo's. We're never perfect. We don't always get things right. But I believe for for longevity, for consistency, for hunger, for the repeated ability to break big stories in rugby league and tell the stories that matter and have his finger on the pulse. I would have to say Phil Rothfield, who's had 40 plus years in the game. For me, he's been a mentor to me at News Corp. And I think he's he's the best journo going around at the moment.
0: As a journo, and I'll finish up with this, how do you think you're perceived by the players compared to the coaches? Is it different types of relationships you have with groups of people rather than individuals?
1: Um, I, I think, Tom, it, it varies. I mean, I, I think some players would see us as scumbag journos <laughs> who can't be trusted. You know, that's, that's the reality. I'm not, I'm not a, immune to that. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm prepared to cop that. I mean, but then there's other players who respect the role of journalists in the game and understand what we do. Um, so I think it, there's a, it's a very broad assessment I think, and in terms of coaches, I think there's a different, even with coaches, Tom, you can get a different dynamic. I mean, some coaches are very wary of the media and don't really play the game, as you would call it, but then there's other coaches like Wayne Bennett who have been around for 50 years, and they understand that it's part of the cut and thrust of of, of being in, in the NRL industry. The one thing I will say, Tom, I do get annoyed when journalists get criticised a lot of the time for the things we write, because I think there's sometimes an expectation from players and coaches that they should be beyond repro- reproach or beyond inquisition. And to me, my argument is this. If you if you want to put your hand out and take $500,000 or 300000 or even a million, with that comes scrutiny, with that comes pressure, and with that comes inquisitions and questions. If you... I've said this to a few coaches who whinge about media coverage. I say, well, listen, there's a simple solution. If you don't want media coverage, if you don't want the scrutiny, then you can go and coach at a lower level. You can go and coach in the Queensland Cup and earn sixty thousand dollars a year, and you won't get the you won't get the media scrutiny. The other thing that shouldn't be forgotten, Tom, is that the game gets a billion dollars plus in the broadcasting deals. It comes from the media. So if the players want their big salaries then it goes hand in hand with dealing with, with journalists and dealing with the media. And the avenue to not dealing with the media is to go into the lower tier, into the second tier, and earn no money and go and get a full-time job that pays the bills. So that's that's the balancing act for players and coaches. And I, and I hope that they're cognizant of that because the media money drives the industry.
0: If you're on more money than the Prime Minister, there's naturally some criticism that comes along with that at some stage.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Tom. And I think that's the thing. Yeah, you know, the, the Prime Minister works harder than, than a lot of NRL players. So I think the NRL players are quite fortunate. In saying, it's not easy. I understand NRL players wouldn't find it easy to read things about themselves. But I would say on balance, Tom... Across a year, there's a lot more positive stories, believe it or not, the negative. We tend to focus on the negative, but players can conveniently forget many of the positive stories that are written about them. So, look, it's it's just human nature. I, I've dealt with it myself. Like I've read some things on Twitter which which do have hurt me sometimes, and I think, oh, I don't like reading that. But then I think, hey, I'm prepared to dish it out as a journo. I've got to cop it as well.
0: Hey, Pete, I know you're a very busy man, but thanks so much for your time.
1: No worries, Tom. Anytime, buddy. legend
0: big thanks to peter for coming on the show he's very generous with his time for this show and has a great insight into the game by the way if you want to get in contact with me you can on twitter at t and don't forget to give the 60go facebook page a like as well my name is tom Canfell, thanks so much for listening don't forget to rate review and subscribe and until next time this has been the 60go podcast and that is full time